Welcome to Experience This, the podcast that celebrates remarkable customer experiences and inspires you to stand out from the competition by wowing your customers. Each episode, we bring you a healthy dose of inspiring stories, funny interactions, and practical takeaways. Marketing and customer experience thought leader, Dan Gingas shares the mic with customer retention and employee experience expert, Joey Coleman, helping you to get people talking about your business. So get ready because it's time to experience this. Get ready for another episode of the Experience This Show. Join us as we discuss the rising expectations of retail customers, getting into your customers' brains, and how a traditional Chinese practice may make working from home more tolerable. Retailing, behaving, and feng shuiing. Oh my. Surveys, reports, studies, and reviews. There are some great resources that look at consumer behavior to find emerging trends and established patterns. We dig through the data and bring you the key takeaways in this edition of Inside the Numbers. Well, hey, folks, we have introduced a new segment this year in season eight, and we are so excited about it. You know, we do a lot of work with some great companies out there. And plus, Joey and I, as you know, are just observers and uh, and people who take in all of the new data that's out there. And we realized that we were missing a segment on our show to really capture all of the reports and white papers and ebooks that are out there. You know, it's not a CX press because it's not an article per se, but it's really diving into the numbers. And we're going to start with a new report out by a company that is ironically called Customer, although with a K, it's a CRM platform for customer service. And the name of their report is The Changing Face of Retail, What Modern Customers Expect from Retail Customer Service. Customer surveyed 500 plus American consumers to get these results. And what they said at the beginning, kind of in summary, I'm just going to read to you because I thought it was really interesting. In the past year, big box retailers were forced to become direct-to-consumer brands overnight. Many businesses closed their storefronts and focused on online operations. Subscription services, personalized products, and flexible marketplaces are now sought after by modern consumers. And most importantly, customers no longer see relationships with retailers as transactional. They see brands as an extension of their identity. Ooh, I like that. That's a powerful thought. You know, the brand is an extension of identity. And I think we've seen that for a long time as it relates to some brands, notably Apple, and people feeling like, oh, this means I care about design and aesthetics. But I agree with their assessment. This is starting to spill into a lot of brand interactions with retailers. Yes, I blame the millennials. I think millennials started. They <laughs> oh, we started, love you, millennials. Of You're course, great. I love. I blame them in a positive way, but I think millennials started this idea of having a relationship with a brand because when you and I were growing up, there was no mechanism to have a relationship with a brand, and now, especially with social media, there is, and I think that's created the desire. 
So a few interesting stats about what's been going on during the pandemic era. 71% of consumers reported shopping online more frequently during the past year. And of those, a whopping 85% plan to continue shopping online more often in the future. Oh, this is so true and such a big one. I will tell you, and I, mom and dad, if you're listening, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here. I say this respectfully. My parents had never used online grocery store shopping, like shopped for their groceries online prior to COVID. And now that they do it, they're never going I, back. Are I don't they? know that they're ever going back. Like they talk about it a little bit, like, oh, maybe we should go back and do more. And I'm like, why? <laughs> what part of that was fun? Like, I don't know. I know you like going shopping more than I do, Dan, for, you know, at the grocery store, or at least based on our conversations, that's my presumption. Yep. But I'm looking at it going, I had no love of going to the grocery store before. I certainly am not going to go now. Or at least if I am going to go, I'm not going to go every week. I'm going to go once a month for the weird thing that for some reason they can't find in the store and I think I can find better than the shopper or whatever it may be. But yeah, I think this was already happening and it's only been accelerated. Yeah, I mean, I still like grocery shopping, but you know what I like even more? The two hours I get back every weekend. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, all right, here is a pop quiz for you, Joey. Okay. What percent of consumers have had a bad customer service experience with at least two retailers in the past year? Ooh, this is a tough one. If it was only one retailer, I would want to say 100%. But because they're saying two in the past year, I'm going to tamp that down a little bit from 100 but I still think it's a significant number. I'm going to go with 62%. Well, 62 is a significant number, but it is not nearly as significant as 82%. Oh my gosh, 82. I'm not surprised, but I was trying to give some hope and some credit out there. 82%. I, I have to wow. admit, I was surprised. I thought that, that was that's, that very, high. very high. Feels high. But you know what? The flip side is, I certainly have had plenty of bad experiences with customer service in the last year with different retailers. So yeah, I, I fall in the 82% myself. Yeah. That well, it's crazy. The report also found that on average, most consumers get annoyed after waiting just four minutes for a response from customer service. And 64% of consumers say they would never shop with a retailer again if they abandoned a customer service conversation before being helped. I abandoned a customer service conversation today with an existing <laughs> uh, vendor of mine and because I had to call back. Actually, Joey, I think I abandoned it because you called me. But, uh, <laughs> but that, that was a pretty high number too. It just kind of underscores this idea that we have one chance with customers and they just, the patience is wearing thin. And frankly, the switching costs are so low in almost every industry. It's just not hard to find another bank or phone provider or cable provider or whatever it is if you're being disappointed. I couldn't agree more. Well, since you put me to the test, I want to test you with one, Dan. All right. What percentage of consumers expect retailers to proactively reach out to them if there's a problem with their order? Well, I mean, you'd think if you'd look at just customer experience professionals, it would be all of them, of right, course. Right, right. But I wonder, I think most customers would like it, but I wonder whether most customers have even thought about it because it happens so rarely. I'm not sure that anyone sits around saying, boy, I wish they would tell me ahead of time. So I'm going to go with a little over 50%, we'll say 58%. 
you know, Dan, you're not that far off, except it's 89%, (laughs) right? So here's the thing that I, and this is why I love this new segment. I don't think the average business has fully comprehended at this point in the game how much the landscape has changed and how much customer expectations have shifted dramatically in the last year. You know, I think it's totally reasonable for a customer to expect that if they have place an order online and something's wrong, that the company should reach out to them before they have to reach out to the company. I don't think that's a big ask. And it seems like 89% of people agree with me. Yet, I'd be willing to bet that if we ask the organizations, not only do you think you, like two separate questions. Number one, do you think you need to do that? But number two, do you even have anything close to a mechanism or a process to do that? We'd be horrified at how low the percentages are. Yeah, and one of the themes that I saw in this report is that most of these percentages are really heavy, heavily weighted one way or the other. There's very few of these that are 50% or 40%. I mean, 87% of consumers get frustrated when they can't contact customer service in the channel they prefer. And 90% say they would not shop with a retailer again if they had a bad customer service experience. That's like almost everybody, people. Totally. And and I think to your point, it's because it's become so much easier to get the same product or the same offering at another store, at another online shop. And a lot of that, I think, is the Amazon effect. But I think, uh, you know, even local shops that are now doing more curbside pickup or kind of enhance their capabilities to do deliveries, people are realizing like, look, I can just take my dollars elsewhere and it's not a problem. You know, I wanted to pull out one of the things that you mentioned there about contacting customer service on the channel they prefer. And this is a quiz for everyone listening. What do you think is the most preferred method for a retail customer to get help? I'm going to list them all out. And as I list them out, I want you to think of two things. Number one, what is your most preferred method? But number two, what do you think, what num- what method is most preferred by the majority of customers out there in the world? Here are the potential methods. Phone, email, live chat, social media, text, self-service, and chatbots. So those are the seven methods that somebody could seek customer support in a retail setting. Think of which one you prefer and then try to guess which one the biggest number of customers prefer, the largest number of customers prefer. What do you think? Dan, what's your guess? Well, I happen to know from working in a couple of industries that cater to older customers that the phone is still a very highly preferred channel. But overall, our consumer base is getting younger and the phone seems to be not a preferred channel. In fact, I'm not sure some of my kids or their friends even know how to use the phone part of their phone. Uh, that's, not what, that's not what they do with it. right? Uh, so I would expect as we got younger that we'd be into more digital channels I would think, I mean, my go-to is usually live chat or social media. So I'm going to go with with live chat. Live chat, fantastic, came in third. Number one, phone. 
Gotta be good old phone. phone. Yep. Good old phone. And here's the thing. I get that a lot of the people listening are not big fans of the phone. It doesn't matter. What matters is that that is the method your customers want. And I will tell you, in our household, we are, uh, you know, maybe within the same household, you have a problem. So like my wife, Barrett, she would prefer live chat. I absolutely prefer phone. So even within the same house, you have two customers that depending on which customer is calling to deal with the issue or chatting to deal with the issue as it may be. Notice how I just defaulted to calling there. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of leading the witness. That's my desired uh, method. And, and folks, we do need to remind you that, that Joey is much older than I am. Yeah, much, much older and not a millennial. I am one of those senior members that like the phone. No, I think the reality is if something's hitting the fan, we want to talk to a human. We want to have empathy. We want to be able to say, what is going on? How can you help me? How can you fix it? So it's okay to double down on your phone service because that is a great way if you're in the retail space and I would posit in any space to continue to support your customers. All right, we're going to leave you with one last statistic. 77% of consumers under the age of 25 report that they're willing to spend more money for good customer service. So keep that in mind. That leaves it on a positive note that... If your customer service is not particularly good right now, hey, the way to get that change approved is to know that people are going to spend more with you if they have great customer service. If you want to learn more, check out customer at K-U-S-T-O-M-E-R.com and look for the changing face of retail, what modern consumers expect from retail customer service. We're excited to give you an overview of an important book you should know about as well as share some of our favorite passages as part of our next book report. Today's book report comes to us from Melina Palmer, applied behavioral economist and host of the Brainy Business Podcast. Her book is What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. What is behavioral economics? Well, according to the Oxford Dictionary, it is a method of economic analysis that applies psychological insights into human behavior to explain economic decision-making. Now, I was drawn to this being a psychology major in my undergrad so many years ago. Actually, I was psychology and communications, which I didn't know until I got into business, is basically marketing. So I ended up in the place (laughs) I should have ended up. There you go. Nice how that worked out. But I love this concept of what makes consumers tick and why do they make the decisions that they make? So some of the concepts that Melina covers in her book include, and if you are a psychology person, you're going to recognize a bunch of these, framing, priming, anchoring and adjustment, relativity, loss aversion, scarcity, social proof, nudges and choice architecture, the paradox of choice partitioning, the pain of paying, surprise and delight, the peak end rule, habits, and reciprocity. And best of all, she then has an entire second half of the book that is literally titled, How to Use This Stuff. So So good. So she introduces all of the concepts and explains to you the psychological concepts and then how you apply it to your company. You know, Dan, I think this is a really timely and important book because I'll confess, I have found myself in conversations in the past where people were using some of these behavioral economics terms 
the kind of the blend here with psychology. And I wasn't a hundred percent sure what they were referring to. Like I had a general idea of what they were referring to, but I didn't deeply understand it. And what I love about this book is it gives you not only the content of what's being said and how these things are irrelevant, but the context of how to actually apply it in your business. So let's hear from the author herself, Melina Palmer, a discussion of what her new book, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, is all about. As a marketer and brand strategist, when I found behavioral economics, I was enthralled. It was all about the psychology of why people buy, what's really going on in the brain, and what people will actually do instead of what we think they should. During my master's program, I was surprised to find that all the things that were so clear to me about how behavioral economics could be applied to business strategy and branding and communications and user experience were nowhere to be found. So I said, why not me? (laughs) That led to starting the first behavioral economics and business podcast, The Brainy Business, back in 2018. And over time, one of the top questions I would get from people around the world was, you know, I get what you're saying when you explain it. I know why behavioral economics matters now, and I'm excited to start applying it, but where do I start? My book, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, was born from this question. It boils down hundreds of hours of podcast material and research and lessons from my consulting, as well as teaching at Texas A&M University, to my top lessons for people in business who want to uplevel the work they're doing by applying behavioral economics without needing to change careers and become an academic researcher. It unlocks consumer decisions in a way that's friendly, approachable, and applicable. It's a reference book of sorts to help you along your journey in applying behavioral economics. And because the worst thing for me would be to have this be a book stuck on a shelf, I also created a free 111-page companion workbook that is available at thebrainybusiness.com slash it. And as you jump into my award-winning book, remember to be thoughtful. So as I mentioned, the psychological piece of this really appeals to me. And this whole idea behind behavioral economics gets to the question of why do customers choose you? And once they're your customer, why do they make the decisions that they make? She gives some great examples about things like pricing and how you can determine the right price for your product. She even gets into that age-old question of, you know, should I end my price in a seven or a nine or all these <laughs> things that, that we think are psychological advantages. She talks about bundling and different packages with different pricing and how we can steer customers to a certain package that isn't always the most expensive one. In fact, it usually isn't. And so all of this stuff really works. And it's just fascinating how you can apply these concepts to better have a chance of getting the customer to do what you want. I agree, Dan. And I think this idea, uh, we, we talk so much in the customer experience space about knowing your customer and knowing what your customer wants. But I think all too often we have a tendency to get caught in the belief that finding that answer comes from surveys and polls and customer interviews and voice of the customer. And I think there's value to all of those things. However, I do think having a base understanding of the psychology and the behavioral economics and how those impact some of the structural aspects of your business 
is equally as valuable, if not more so, because if there's anything we know about psychology is nine times out of 10, the person you're talking to will have an incredibly difficult time stepping out of their own reality to speak more generally about the situation. And there were just so many great points and quotes and takeaways from this book. If you're cool with that, I want to share one of my favorite passages. And it's all about how we think life is a linear path, but really it isn't. And I quote, many people assume there's a linear relationship between dissatisfaction, satisfaction, and delight, but it doesn't work that way. You can't do more of what is satisfactory to get someone delighted because super satisfactory is still just satisfied. The customer experience scale instead goes like this, outrage, then dissatisfaction, then satisfaction, then delight. If we were to think about the two negatives, dissatisfaction and outrage, and the two positives, satisfaction and delight, the real difference between them is surprise. When you have a surprising positive experience, it results in delight. An unexpected surprising negative experience, that's when outrage comes into play. I love that quote as well, and I think it's so true, right? If we're just driving towards customer satisfaction, we're never really getting to that delight. We're never getting to what you and I refer to as the remarkable experience, the one that is worth talking about. Because satisfied is good, it just isn't amazing. I had a favorite passage as well, and it is this. The biggest mistake most businesses make when trying to apply behavioral economics is at step one. It is too easy to find the right answer to the wrong question. Invest more time in understanding the problem so you are creating the right interventions to nudge behavior properly. I love that because we've talked before about, you know, iterating on the problem as much as you iterate on the solution to make sure that you're actually uh, finding the right solution to the right problem. And I'm reminded of a, uh, a law professor that my dad had when he went back to law school that when students answered the question incorrectly, his response would be, that's a good answer to some question. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, but unfortunately not the question we were asking. And so I think that uh, the same point is to be made here is we need to make sure that, we've, that we're answering the right question and identifying the right question before we go to answer it. So let's turn to the author, Melina Palmer, for her favorite passage. Almost everything you do in life is based on a prediction of what's coming next, which is based on the subconscious's understanding of the past. It turns through choices and usually does quite well. However, more often than we realize, the subconscious is using rules that don't perfectly fit the situation at hand. For example, most of us aren't in real danger of meeting tigers these days, but the brain still applies our fight, flight, or freeze response when we're attacked by a meeting with the boss or overwhelmed by ads on a website. As a marketer and brand strategist, when I found behavioral economics, I was enthralled. It was all about the psychology of why people buy, what's really going on in the brain, and what people will actually do instead of what we think they should. The most important thing to know is that behavioral economics helps us understand these rules of the brain. The concepts I will introduce to you throughout this book have been proven across culture, age, gender, income, education, and more. 
They may appear in different degrees and are not exactly the same for every person in every situation, but we all do each of these things to varying degrees in our lives every day. Imagine you were seeing a chessboard for the first time and sat down to play against a master, but you weren't allowed to know the rules and had to learn as you went. You might come up with theories and guesses for what each piece could do or why and when to move one, but it would be incredibly difficult to make progress and you'd almost never win. How much could you learn at each point if you knew the rules going in? How different would that experience be? To me, understanding behavioral economics and how the brain makes decisions can set you up to be the chess master playing against a fumbling novice. When you have the rules of the game and most of the world doesn't, what sort of leg up can you have in life and business? Let's find out. So if you too are inspired by the psychology behind your customers' brains and you want to learn more about behavioral economics and how it applies to customer experience, check out the new book by Melina Palmer, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics, available wherever fine books are sold. Sometimes, a remarkable experience deserves deeper investigation. We dive into the nitty-gritty of customer interactions and dissect how and why they happen. Join us while we're dissecting the experience. Joey, do you know anything about the traditional Chinese practice of feng shui? Well, actually, Dan, you're going to think I'm making this up, but I'm being totally honest. I do know a little bit about feng shui, and that's because back in, I'd say, the late 1980s, early 1990s, my mom got into feng shui as a practice in terms of how we were organizing things in our house. She actually even started doing some consulting for other businesses about their arrangement of things. So it's it's my understanding, and I'll do my best to paraphrase on the definition here, is that feng shui is the concept or the philosophy of placement of objects in your home and their orientation to doors and windows and you know the way you enter and leave a space and how that can affect the energy that flows through a room and its impact on you individually as well as other people that might come into the space with you. That's my understanding of feng shui anyway. Yeah, and I actually think it's a kind of a cool follow-up to our last discussion on consumer psychology a little bit because this is, it's not psychology, but it, it does get to how people feel and what inspires them and then therefore how they act. And you may be asking, okay, this is great, Joey and Dan, and none of us are surprised that Joey knew about feng shui, of course, <laughs> but what the heck are we talking about this for on a customer experience podcast? Well, I am so glad that you asked that and I am here to answer that. Do you remember back in episode 111, we reviewed a book called The Secret Diary of a Mystery Shopper? Well, I remember the episode. I didn't remember the episode number, but thank you, Dan, for calling it out so our listeners can go read this and if they want to. No problem. Well, the book was written by a woman named Claire Bosk Scott. And Claire, during the pandemic, kind of had an epiphany and started focusing on a different aspect of her business that she calls biz shui. And uh, her definition of that is, and I quote, a blend of the traditional feng shui principles with the modern business and personal needs. 
BizShui program is an integrated and more holistic approach to customer experience. Let's listen to Claire herself describe this a little bit further. Over 98% of the most highly engaged employees say that their workplace helps them feel a sense of belonging to their company and its culture. Yes, our business environments have changed drastically since working from home has been imposed upon us. What most people don't realize is that our environment has a direct effect on us human being. Researches from environmental psychology show the transaction and the interrelationships between people and their physical surrounding, demonstrating how and why our environment impact our state, the way we think, feel and behave. To thrive in our job, career, as a leader, manager or employee, we need to have a working environment who is going to support us, not hinder us. I have one tool which you may have not thought in the first place. It's called Feng Shui. Feng what? <laughs> yes, Feng Shui. This traditional Eastern philosophy follows the same belief system as environment psychology in which there is a spiritual relationship between the physical elements of nature and human-made environments to create the right balance of energy for harmony in one space. The purpose of Feng Shui is to make people feel good by promoting an effective use not only of your space and material, but an alignment of the flow of energy with your own state. I blend the ancient principle with a modern business need to optimize workplaces, commercial and home offices. By making simple but powerful changes in your environment, you will maximize your productivity without having to cost anything. You will create healthy, harmonious environment, resulting in happy, creative, confident workforce who will feel good in themselves and strive to thrive, and are working towards increasing your profitability. Isn't it what all businesses try to achieve? You know, Dan, I actually think there is a lot of validity behind this concept. I don't know about you, but there's something about the room you're in impacting how you feel. If you're in a room where it's messy and stuff isn't really put in a good space, I find myself feeling messy and disorganized. And if I'm in a room that is beautifully apportioned and things are everything has its place and they're put where they go and it's clean and there's, for lack of a better way of putting it, some breathing room around, I feel more possibility. And I think we see this when, you know, we're asked to, you know, go outside and think big or, you know, go to the offsite to a different location to get out of the way we think normally in our office. I think that the principles behind what Claire is talking about are things that all of our listeners will be familiar with, just maybe not the idea of applying that necessarily to their office or the design of their home office. Well, and I think that's what makes this so interesting to talk about now. I certainly have had the feeling before in an office, you know, at a company of feeling 
trapped or boxed in. I've had offices with where the doors can close, but they don't have a window and it feels dark and, and, you know, like you're in jail or something. I've also been part of those completely open spaces where I feel like I have no privacy and I can't have a, a phone call without somebody listening. And since I've gotten home, I've actually changed my office around several times to get to the point where I feel good about it. And I'm now facing outside, looking outside a window and I can see, you know, the weather and I look at a beautiful tree and see birds going by and all that sort of stuff. And, and it makes me feel a lot better. I also, like you, don't enjoy a mess, even though my desk inevitably gets messy, but that's what Friday afternoons are for to clean that up. <laughs> so I get it too. And I think that the, the key here is more and more people have been working from home, obviously in the last year and a half, but more importantly, so many of those people are going to continue working from home. And I think one of the trends that we are going to see that is going to outlive the pandemic is the companies that never allowed work from home are going to finally realize that working from home has a ton of advantages. And I think we're going to see companies give up on really large buildings because it's too expensive to maintain. I think it allows companies to hire people from anywhere instead of having to only hire from a you know 15-mile radius of your office building. There's a ton of advantages. And as that continues to manifest, we're going to have to become more aware of how our employees feel as they're working from home and whether they are mentally and physically healthy. Absolutely. And I don't think this is just a question of, you know, necessarily the morale and or the technical tools they have available to them. I think a lot of businesses, and it's understandable, I think the the pandemic kind of rolled in quickly and a lot of businesses were forced to figure out what does a virtual or a distributed workforce look like. And a lot of the initial conversations around investments went to, well, let's make sure they have laptops. Let's make sure they have a camera for Zoom calls. Let's make sure that, you know, they have some, you know, maybe they can have a little bit of a budget towards a desk or a chair. And when you think about a traditional office setting, that's just a piece of the puzzle. Things like a door that you could close for a private conversation. Things like, do we have plants in the office to bring a little bit of green in? What is the artwork in the space? Do we have motivational posters around? Those type of thoughts that went into office space design, when everybody moved home, now we're not necessarily sure what their home situation is like. I know a lot of folks that ended up taking over the dining room table and setting that up as the office. Or I, I know for us, we ended up in a scenario where we're trying to create more office space for me, which meant my wife and her business was kind of relegated to trying to find a different room, which was the bedroom. And so now you've got an office in the bedroom. And, you know, there's just a lot of complicating factors here that I understand many businesses are thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to have to sort this all out. But the way you're going to keep your employees engaged, the way you're going to keep your employees retained, and the way you're going to get the best level of productivity out of your employees is if you help them to design the space they're in and create it for doing work as opposed to kind of this slap shot, oh, let's just make whatever our home space is into a workspace for a short period of time. That works for a day or maybe even a week or a month, but long-term, that's not a recipe for success. Totally agree with you, Joey. So listeners, 
Don't ever say that we don't bring you the newest, latest, and greatest thinking about both customer experience and employee experience. Because if you asked me 130-some episodes ago whether we would be talking about feng shui, I can assure you my answer would have been a solid no. But if you'd like to learn more about biz shui from Claire Bosk Scott, go visit her at her website, which is clairebosscscott.com. Claire is C-L-A-I-R-E. Bosk is B-O-S-C-Q, and Scott is S-C-O-T-T dot com. Claire is also very active on social media and puts out great content on the topic. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Experience This. You're the best listener ever. And since you listened to the whole show, yay you! We're curious, was there a specific part of this episode that you enjoyed the most? If so, it would mean the world to us if you could share it with a coworker, a friend, or someone that just loves listening to podcasts. And while you're in the sharing mood, if you felt inclined to jump over to iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and write us a review, we would so appreciate it. And when you do, don't forget to let us know as we might have a little surprise for you. Thanks again for your time and we'll see you next week for more Experience. Yes.